0: We started a couple weeks ago a series that we called Six Words and then we canceled for Snow, so it became a five-word series. Uh, Anybody remember the word that Justin preached on? Nobody remembers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Justin preached on No. It's all about boundaries. Ah, come on. (laughs) Justin preached on No. It's about boundaries. It's about saying not No. Let's... Resist temptation. Let's uh, create some boundaries in life so that we can say uh, yes to a greater yes. I preached here a couple weeks ago on yes and the idea that God has a yes for you. God is not like, "Mm, maybe, or today I like you, tomorrow I don't. God is always yes. And we talked about how. All the promises of the Bible find their yes in Jesus, that God has a yes for you. And then in turn, we can have a yes for God and we can have a yes for others. We're going to keep going in this five or six word series. We're going to talk about another word today that is a life-giving word. It's also maybe the most countercultural word in the whole series. And uh, we're going we're to look at what this is. Justin is preaching help right now over at West. He'll be here next week to preach help. And the idea of help is, like, we weren't created to do this alone. We weren't created to live life alone. We were created for community. God himself is community and extends the community to us. And the ability to say yes it does not show how little you are. It actually gives you life. The ability to walk with others and say, On my own, on my own is not good. Together in community, that's what we were created for. And so help, help is a life-giving word. This week, the word is about enormous freedom, but not the way the world lives. And I want you to do this. I want you to kind of raise both hands up. Okay? And here, with your right hand, with your right hand, I want you to make a fist. I want you to make a fist and I want you to imagine that you're just gripping and holding on tight and you're grasping and you don't want to lose it and you want to make sure that you uh, have control and are provided for. And The other one, I just want you to feel this. I just want you to feel the open-handed nature. This is two ways to live. This is what our word is about today. The word today is enough. One way of life in your right hand lives life saying, I I don't have enough and I've got to keep grabbing and I've got to keep holding on and grasping. Maybe someday I'll have enough. The other way says, God, I'm going to trust. I have enough. You are enough for me. You have provided enough for me. Are your hands getting tired? You can put them down. (laughs) Shake them out. We're going to talk about two different ways to live because you can go through life with either one of those postures where you can say, enough. Enough. God, I will trust you. You are the God of enough. You are God of abundance. And what you give me, I will hold loosely. What you give me, I want to share it deeply. And I will trust you completely. And I don't have to get tight-fisted. I can live with a great sense of freedom." It's about saying, I don't want to just be a taker in life. I want to be a giver. It starts with enough. Now, the inability to say enough can actually be fatal. And if you have a goldfish, if you have a goldfish, we have a goldfish in our house, and we've had to teach our kids one or two flakes at a time. Why? Because if you dump that whole thing and you're like, I just want to be so good to my fish, you know what will happen to the goldfish? It'll eat and it'll eat and eat and eat and eat until it dies. It does not have the ability to say enough. And it will consume itself to death. I had a cocker cocker spaniel growing up. We had a family dog. And our dog had this, (laughs) um, when it would eat, it would growl. If you got anywhere close to it, it's like ah, and, and it was just like, it was a machine the way it ate. And one time, um, I don't even know if I told my family about this, one time I was like, how much will you eat? <laughs> huh? And So I filled the bowl and Ginger ate and growled at me and ate and then it emptied and I filled it again. She's like, yeah, <laughs> and ate and ate and ate and ate and I filled it again. Three and a half bowls later, she kind of waddled away from the bowl, like, oh, what just happened? That was glorious. (laughs) Not having the ability to say enough affects you. We do it too. People do it. We do it with food. Like, studies are done uh, with American culture and with other cultures around the world to say, when when have you had enough? Some people, they're... There are three. There maybe there's more different responses to this. Some people count their calories. Some people know scientifically how much their body should have, and they're say, I'm going to put this amount of fuel into me, and then I will be good. And when they're done with their caloric intake, they're like I'm good. Some people, what is enough food? It says when I feel full, that's when I push away from the table and I'm, I feel satisfied. Some people, the answer to when is enough is when the food is gone. So I had a roommate in college who, when we went to a buffet, he made them pay. <laughs> He's like, if I'm going to spend $8 on this, I'm going to get my money's worth. And he would go back and back, and back, and it got to the point where he said, okay, I need to not go to buffets. For me, it's sin. (laughs) Like, for real, I sin because I just eat, and eat, and eat, and eat, and eat until I'm sick. You can't out-eat a buffet. That's the point. Right? When is enough? When is enough? They've done studies where People will go to a table and like they uh, have a bowl of soup and they've rigged it so that little, little bit by little bit more soup will come up into the bowl as they eat. So it literally is the Olive Garden never ending soup bowl. And people in that situation uh, will eat about twice as much as somebody who has a bowl that doesn't refill itself. They just eat because it's not going away and I, man, I don't want to look weird like I'm just whatever. People eat and eat and eat without the ability to say enough. And it gets into more than food. When is enough? Like we all would say we want to be generous. As a nation, we don't live that way generally. Looked at a study this week that said 84% of Americans give 0 to 1% of their income. That's really strong, living like this. What I get is mine, and I'm going to hold on to it. 3% of Americans give what the Bible would call a tithe. So God in the Old Testament says, I want you to tithe. It literally means a tenth. I want you to give a tenth of what comes your way. What I provide to you, give a tenth of that back to me. And it's always been an expression of joy an expression of trust, an expression of, God, what you have given me is enough and I will give out of that. Not, not I'm going to make sure that I'm in the black at the end of the month and I'll give in excess. Like right from the start, God, what you give me, I'm going to give a tenth. Three percent of Americans give that. I'm not sure it's actually better in the church. I'm not sure that we who go to church are better at giving than people around us. The tithe is an expression of trust. There's a reason, there's a reason that we end up living tight-fisted. There's an amount that I have, and there's an amount that I, that is out there somewhere that I think this is what I would take to be happy. And everyone, everywhere in here is called discontentment. right, this gap is called discontentment. What I have and what I think I need to be happy. So when I'm a little kid, this starts really young. If I had this toy, then I would be happy. And I get that, and what happens? This happens. The more I get, the higher the bar gets. And I might even suggest that as a kid, our gap of discontentment is real short. And as we grow, And we get more the gap starts to move exponentially faster than than we can keep up with and so by the time we get to adulthood there is such a great gap of discontentment in our lives because we've put our goal on stuff we've put our goal on acquisition we've put our goal on accumulation if I could just get this then I'd be happy so I want to give you a, a, a little picture. When Leslie and I were dating, and my brother and his uh, would become wife were dating, uh, Kevin and I decided, let's take our girls to the Phantom of the Opera. Let's do a really good date. And uh, we bought tickets and went to the Phantom of the Opera. And the whole time, this is an expensive date for me. We didn't normally do this, okay? So, like, we had lots of cheap dates, and then we had the Phantom of the Opera. and. Something was not right in me because we sat down in the seat and I was like, isn't this amazing? And she's like, yeah, this is cool. I can't wait for the show. Aren't these great seats? Yeah, it is. Do you know these seats cost $70 each? And she's like, I'm less excited now. It was like, you just wanted to buy my, like, there was something violating about me saying, look how much I spent on you. It's was like, mm, we're not the best date we've ever had. Not the best date we've ever had. One of the more expensive dates, especially at that time in our life, but it was nowhere near money couldn't buy a great date. Not in my heart, not, w- not with what was going on at that time. I want to talk today about a, a man who realized who realized that had, he had been living with a gap. He had been living with a discontentment gap and how Jesus changed the way he saw life and started to live out of the word enough. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Luke 19. We'll put the verses up on the screen. Luke 19 uh, tells the story of Zacchaeus. He's a little dude. If you grew up in church, you're know, like saying that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. That's him. That's uh, him. We're going to talk about Zacchaeus tonight, or this morning. So Luke 19, verse 1 says, He, that's Jesus, He entered Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. If we stop there and we say, what do we already know about Zacchaeus? We, we know actually quite a bit about Zacchaeus at this point. We know that he had money. We know that, I mean... The Bible says he was rich. And we know, know he's a tax collector. We know how tax collectors worked. So uh, Israel was under Roman rule. And the Romans, rather than going and collecting taxes themselves, they would find insiders who knew where the money was. And they would pay these people to go and extract taxes from their fellow men. So tax collectors got hated because they could, they could call whatever tax they wanted. They got paid out of the taxes. So they said, nah, I know you got more money than that. I need you to be taxed more. And if they didn't, they would just bring Rome in stronger to say they have a lot of money and they're not taxing enough. So they had lots of power. They were, they were seen as betrayers and they were hated and they got rich off of it. Nobody liked them. So socially, tax collectors became outsiders, right? They had money, but not relationship, not community. And think, closed-fisted versus open-handed. Which life is the tax collector living? Really clearly, tight-fisted, right? Over time, something just feels empty in Zacchaeus. The money is not spanning that gap. But Jesus gets his attention. Something about Jesus grabs the attention of Zacchaeus and he wants to get closer. Verse 3 in Luke 19 says, he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was so small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. The details of the story keep coming. But distinguished men never ran. They wore robes. It's hard to run in a robe. You'd get tripped up. Plus, you'd get mocked. You'd get ridiculed. Like, you were supposed to stand tall, walk slowly, walk with great dignity. He runs. And not only does he run, he realizes... Once I get to this place, the crowd's just going to move. I won't be able to see Jesus, so I'm going to climb a tree. That was a no-no too. He's like, distinguished men don't climb trees. Like, I'm short. What am I going to do? So he's like, I don't care how undignified this looks. I want to see Jesus. And so he climbs the tree. And he's, he's looking for something that he's missing. There's something breaking in Zacchaeus' life. Maybe the money was just feeling empty or the longing in him took over. He ran and he climbed and then no one expected what happened next. Verse 5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Of all the homes in Jericho, Jesus picks his to stay at. You ever had the spotlight turn on you when you weren't expecting it? You ever had that happen? Zacchaeus just wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to, like, from the background, look in on who this was. He didn't want to be front and center, I don't think. He he ran, and he's in a tree for crying out loud. Like, you want everybody to look in you at at that point? And that's exactly what Jesus does. He draws everybody's attention to this short little guy in a tree. What is going on with him? And Jesus looks at him, and the moment hits Zacchaeus, I bet, oh, no. And eyes start to turn, and he's right there, dangling out in front of everybody. And Jesus adds to the attention here. He says, I'm staying at your house tonight. I'm going to your place. It's like listening to a drawing when that uh, wheel is going around, and you hope that somebody, or you hope that when they pull it out, they're gonna read your name, right? You ever been in that? Like, I'm so sure they're gonna call my name. I wanna win that prize. I know my name is coming, and they read somebody else's name. That's probably what the crowd felt. Where's he gonna stay? Where's he gonna stay? Where's he gonna stay? Zacchaeus. Not, not what I had in mind. It's frustrating when somebody else's name gets pulled. Even or especially if you think that person isn't as deserving as you are. Now, that's how the whole crowd felt. It said everybody grumbled when Jesus said he was going to stay at Zacchaeus's place. Everyone deserved it more than Zacchaeus. And then here's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't build the walls that we do. He tears walls down. And no matter what kind of life you've lived, Jesus welcomes you. And he actually welcomes himself into your life. He doesn't just welcome you, he welcomes himself in there. He walks right up into your business and he says, let's do this together. No matter how you've lived, Jesus loves you and is welcoming to you. And Zacchaeus, to his credit, comes down and says, come on over. Verses 6 and 7 says, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Like he means it. Jesus means it. He wants to be at my house. I don't understand, but game on. I want it too. He receives him joyfully, verse 7, And when they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Now, what's the conversation like in Zacchaeus' home? I would love to take a peek. I'd love to hear what is going on in the banter. What does Jesus talk about with Zacchaeus? There's stuff happening in the heart and mind of Zacchaeus. It was enough that he would run. It was enough that he would climb up. It would be called out and then come down and welcome Jesus. And now they're talking and you can almost just sense his heart burning. Maybe Jesus is just getting real with him. Is this what you hoped it would be? When you were a kid and you thought what you wanted, is this what you wanted? Is it providing what you thought it would? Is your heart really thriving? When is enough, Zacchaeus? What is enough? Do you have enough? Do you have joy? Do you have contentment? Or are you, Zacchaeus? in irony, living with scarcity, even with all this money. It's not just Zacchaeus that those questions could get asked to. It's us, too, right? Listen to what this author, Lynn Twist, writes. and She writes a book called The Soul of Money. Now, as a, as a warning... I'm not doing this just to be a jerk. I don't want to come down too hard on you. There's a lot of uh, scarcity in this passage, but I think it reveals something in a lot of our hearts, and I think it's worth uh, leaning into. She writes, surprisingly, in a world of overabundance, too, the conversation we have is dominated by what we don't have and what we want to get. No matter who we are or what our circumstances, we swim in conversations about what there isn't enough of. She writes, I see it in myself. For me, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours of our days, of our lives, explaining, complaining, worrying about what we don't have enough of. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough rest. We don't have enough exercise. We don't have enough work. We don't have enough profits. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough wilderness. We don't have enough weekends. We don't have enough money ever. We're not thin enough, we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough or fit enough or educated or successful enough or rich enough ever before we sit up in bed, before we touch our feet to the floor. We're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds race with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack Exhale for a moment. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt trapped in scarcity? Like, I don't have enough. The world is pressing in and screaming, it's not enough. You're not enough. You don't do enough. You don't provide enough. You don't have enough. You aren't enough. Is Zacchaeus enough? Jesus, it's like he leans in and says, you could follow me. You could trust me. And you could see that what I have is enough for you. And then it says he, he rose. Zacchaeus rises. This is common. Hospitality was a big deal. The host would rise and thank different people, especially a guest of honor, for coming. And he rises, but he does something different. In verse 8, it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, said to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and he did, over and over and over and over and over, I restore it fourfold. He's so captivated by a new life with Jesus. And you know what he does? He recalculates. He says, all of this that I have it's more than enough. Actually, 50% of what I have is enough. I'm going to give it all away. And then out of that 50%, if I've cheated people, I'll give four times back to them. Because 50% with Jesus is better than 100% without him. 50% of what Zacchaeus had was better with Jesus than 100% of the grasping without him. I love Jesus' response here. In verse 9, it says, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. This is one of the highest compliments that Jesus could give him. In Israel, to be called a son of Abraham was to be called, like, fully a part of the community. Rising up, it was who their identity was in. And he hasn't been called a son of Abraham in a long time. He's been probably called a son of something else. And Jesus says, you're a son of Abraham. And he's restoring identity. He says, you're welcome. You're welcome here. I see you, and it's okay. Salvation has come to this house. Now, what Jesus isn't saying here is, you just bought a ticket to heaven. You just earned your way or paid your way into an eternal Disneyland. Disneyland. Is not what he's saying. What he's saying here, the word salvation, is healing. Healing has come to this house today. Deliverance has come to this house today. This house has been full of sickness, and what is happening is the sickness is being purged. Zacchaeus is being delivered from a life of scarcity, and he's opening his eyes and his heart up into a life of enough a life of abundance, of more than enough. He doesn't have to live in the sickness anymore. Jesus says healing, deliverance, salvation has come, and it's evidenced by his generosity. Zacchaeus is being delivered from a sickness that has stolen his life. Now he's living a life of abundance. I was thinking this past week, about the different places that Leslie and I have lived in during our married life. When we first got married, we had this funny little rental house in Huntington, Indiana. I think the second story burned off, like for real. I think there was a house fire because there was a closet that had a window in it. And it's like, that, I bet, was a stairway. And they didn't tear it down and they didn't fix it. They just kind of like sealed it and said, I think it's good. (laughs) And we lived in it. And it was wonderful. And I remember living in Huntington early in our marriage. We didn't have kids. We'd finish dinner and we'd go take a walk like through the neighborhoods. And we actually got out a map of Huntington and said, let's try and walk on roads that we've never been down before. And we'd check them off mentally. And then even on the sheet, say, let's walk here tonight. Let's walk here tonight. Let's walk over here. When we moved to Fond du Lac, we, we bought a 100-year-old house. It's Fond du Lac Square, two-story. Uh, it had character, and it was 100 years old. So it had some of that, too. And we started having kids in that house. Like, Elena just turned 12 this weekend. And, and we were thinking about the night before Elena's birth, sitting in the living room, I won't describe all of that because Leslie's not here. That's not fair. But like watching watching kids come into that house and how the bedrooms got filled with kids was incredible. The backyard there was big enough for a swing set and a tent. And it was full. Like it was beyond full at that point. You'd swing into the tent. (laughs) But our kids grew up a certain point right there in Fond du Lac and our family changed. When we moved here to Damascus Road, we rented a duplex in Cottage Grove for the first year. It had a fireplace. I've never had a fireplace in a home or in, in my home. I loved it. I wanted it. It was a real wood fireplace and it was just joy. And the office, it had an office in it that didn't have heating installed or something. The heat didn't get there. And so I had an opportunity to wear my Snuggie I did, and my confidence grew. <laughs> it had a rock in the backyard that the kids, I was just sitting there. Like, I don't know how rocks in backyards get to these places, or if they're like, well, we can't move it. We'll just build around it. Well, they could just jump off the rock. It's nothing fancy, but it was like it became a toy that the kids could play with. And then we bought a house. And a couple weekends ago, my brother was pruning some of our trees, and I'm so helpful that I was lying back in the backyard like, you're doing good up there. I'll move stuff when you knock it down. And I'm looking up at the trees. I'm like, God, how do you let us live here? How in the world do we get to live where we do right now? Do we get to be in the place where we are? Do we have this church that we get to be a part of? You are so good to us, God. Now, I want to ask you, in which of those four homes do you think we were happiest? It has nothing to do with the homes we were in, right? We had highs and we had lows in each of those places. Our happiness as a family has had nothing to do with our stuff. We think it does often. We get trapped up in that too. But when we look back, I can honestly tell you, we have been happy and we have been sad in each of those four places. And it's got nothing to do with abundance of stuff. There's a different kind of abundance. Enough is not a matter of wealth achieved. It's a statement of trust that we declare. So, will you live tight-fisted, or will you live open-handed? Look at Paul in Philippians 4, 10-13. He said, I, regrace, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. That at last, you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. The church is starting to give to Paul and to his ministry. And he's saying, like, I didn't just need it, but you have an opportunity to give. And I love that we get to be in this now together. Verse 11 says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty, and I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Contentment is a mindset. Contentment is recognizing the God of abundance in your life. It's about trusting Him. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, the clothes that you wear. Like, God is crazy about you. And he will take care of you. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? This, this isn't just a call to do better to you. I want you to hear me in that. This isn't just a call to do better Generosity can't come from a place of scarcity. Generosity naturally comes from a place of fullness. You can't give out of nothing. If you're struggling with scarcity, if you're struggling with a tight fist, your first step is to turn to Jesus. Whether you've been living with him for a long time or whether you're, you are not with him, you don't even know who he is, your first step is always toward Jesus, not toward, I gotta do better. Get close to Jesus and let him fill you. Let him show you abundance. Let him reveal to you over and over and over how much you have. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about your identity in Him that is enough. You are enough in Him and you have enough in Him. Let Him reveal to you the one who has unlimited resources and who delights in you. Have you ever put that equation together? God has resources that never end. And he delights in me. That's a good deal. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fight. I don't have to uh, grasp. I can just trust. He may not give you a big bank account. He may not give you a Mercedes. Or he might. Like, that really, that really is not whether God is giving you abundance or not. Having those things or not having those things is not the indicator of His love for you or favor with you. He may not give you those things, but He gives life in abundance. If you have it, if you have that faith, if you have that belief, then turn it into action. Because belief isn't just what you know. Belief is what you live out. Like, believe something so much that you will... Put it into action that you will live that way. You don't just get the right answer on a test. You start to actually live like it means something in your life. Belief is how we live. God calls his people to generosity because we have enough. Because we have more than enough. Because we have him. So he calls us to live that out in faith by being generous. Because we don't have to worry. Because we're in good hands. Because God is crazy generous. We've seen this in the history of Damascus Road Church. We shouldn't be here. And God in his grace and God in his generosity just keeps giving. As much as we might try to screw it up. God's like, nope, I'm not done. No, I'm doing something. No, you're going to have more than enough. I will keep giving and I will not stop giving. I will always be generous. I want you to trust that and I want you to follow me in that. I want you to imitate me in that, not just to do good, but to respond in trust and faith and to live that out knowing, knowing who I am. You cannot outgive God. We can't. We cannot be more generous than God is. Now, you might need the challenge this morning to stop thinking about how much you don't have and start thinking about how amazingly generous God has been to you. You don't have to live in the lie of scarcity. It's a lie. And the truth is that God is enough, has enough, gives enough, provides enough, is enough. Sin wrecks our life. Life without God just makes a mess. Ever since Adam and Eve reached for that fruit, instead of trusting what God had for them, we've been plagued with this lie of scarcity. The lie that ruins our lives and rules our lives. But look at Romans 5.17 and we'll move toward finishing up here. Paul writes, For if, because of one man's trespass, this is pointing back to Adam and Eve, grasping, stretching, and not trusting, by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more, much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace. And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Like ever since Adam and Eve reached for the fruit, we've been living in the lie of scarcity that says, I've got to keep reaching. I've got to keep reaching. I've got to keep reaching. And Jesus shows up with an abundance of grace and says, Stop reaching. Stop it. Just let me be enough. I'm more than enough. I have you an abundance of grace. I will always have you. And we get to live in that. Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he calls him down and it changes his life. Zacchaeus is changed from a taker to a giver. And he sees you right now where you're at. And he calls to you and he wants to give you again and again and again, an abundance of grace. Will you let him? Will you grow in your trust and in your generosity? I want you to close today by making a fist. As we wrap up today, I want you to make a fist and I want you to squeeze it tight. And I want you to think about the things that you're holding on to. Are you living with discontent? Are you living with not enough? And I want you to picture the gap in your hand as you reach for it. Are you grasping for something that never delivers? And if you recognize that God holds you, if you recognize that God provides all you need and that he will continue to give you an abundance of grace, that you don't have to worry You can respond in generosity if you realize that. From your fist, I just want you to let it go. And I want you to feel the release. And I want you to feel the freedom. And I want you to feel the gift right now. Let God meet you and pour into you and say, I am enough. I will always be enough. I have always been enough. If you feel that, as we close this morning, I want you to physically speak out the word enough in the quiet, in the release, as we move toward communion. I want you to take a risk. It can be a whisper, it can be a shout. You feel however you wanna respond to that. I I want you to receive and just speak out the word enough as a declaration of trust Let's pray. Jesus, you gave everything, and you still do. Help us to know that what we have is enough in you. Not just enough to get by, it's enough. It's enough. Would you continue to transform our hearts to be more and more like yours? Would you help us to live out of the abundance that you give us? Would you make us generous? Jesus, in your name, we speak out against the lie of scarcity. We reject it, and we say it has to go. Get out of our lives, scarcity. We don't have to bow to you anymore. Jesus, in you, in you. We have enough. We receive it and we place our trust in you. Amen.